Hello, I'm Danny Aiken, president of Southeastern Seminary. This podcast is a variety of audio resources from around Southeastern. To learn more about Southeastern, visit scbts.edu. What's up, Southeastern? <clears throat> All right. Okay. Uh, Dr. Aiken, faculty, staff of Southeastern, thank you so much for having me. Students, thank you for being here. Uh, It's a joy uh, to be with you all and open up God's word. Uh, Please turn to Psalm 131. I thought that by chance for Black History Month, they might add 15 minutes to the preaching clock. (laughs) However, they didn't. So with that said, let's pray and dive directly in. Oh, dear Lord. Our Lord, indeed, how majestic is your name in all the earth, and how wonderful is your word in all it says. We pray, Lord, that you would encourage us this morning with your truth. We ask that you would sanctify us in the truth. Your word is truth. We ask this in the name and for the sake of your son. Amen. Amen. Just so you know, I will not be discouraged if at any point something encourages you and you feel so inclined to express that. Uh, We're going to read Psalm 131 in its entirety. I will probably only be focusing on verse one, Uh, but let me read God's word. A song of ascents of David. O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. But I have calmed and quieted my soul. Like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, Hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. And saints, this is God's word. And we say thanks be to God. And may he bless the communication of his word, both in its reading and in the preaching of it. Just want to begin with a question, and that is a very basic question, a regular question that we bump into as we live life, and that is, how is contentment possible while life is so confusing? How is contentment possible while life is so confusing? And you would think in one sense, the longer you live, the less confusing life gets, but often we find the opposite. The longer you live and the longer you serve the Lord, the longer you carry your cross. In one sense, the more confusing things become, the more disjointed they are with the rule of Christ, the more aware you are that we do not now presently see all things in subjection to him. Christians are those who have been purchased by the blood of Christ and have the promise to enter into his glory and to spend forever with him where he is. We will get to dwell in Emmanuel's land with the king of glory himself, where we'll be free from every burden, we'll be restored, confirmed, strengthened, and established 
completely removed of every sin and everlastingly. That deliverance in Christ is where we are headed and we get some of the experience and taste of that now, but that is not where we currently are, which is why the Bible describes us as pilgrims, sojourners, exiles, strangers in the land, uh, for our true citizenship is somewhere else, right? Our true citizenship is in heaven, and we're awaiting still the city that is yet to come. And so, to serve our pilgrimage there, to empower us while we struggle here, we're looking at Psalm 131, for it's a psalm that calls all of God's people to trust him to hope in the Lord, and it gives us how that ought to look. Some people will tell you what to do, but they don't always tell you how to do it. Well, this psalm tells you the how, how to rest content in the Lord. Now, the inscription of this psalm lets us know that it's written by David and is a song of ascent. Uh, the songs of ascent are found in the psalm book from Psalm 120 to Psalm 134. And while it's unknown what the exact meaning of the inscription is, songs of ascent, it's generally held to that these were pilgrim songs. They were songs that the saints would sing as they went up to worship the Lord in Jerusalem, the ascent, the going up to Jerusalem. You would do that both literally and figuratively. Literally in that the elevation of Jerusalem was on a mountain, but also figuratively in that when you went to the city of God, you were going to the city of the Most High God. So anytime you went to Jerusalem, even if you're heading south, you'd still be considered going up to Jerusalem. And as the saints would gather in Jerusalem regularly, these, it's understood, were songs they would sing on their journey there. Now, through the scriptures, we notice the saints wrestling through their troubles and learning to trust the Lord. Whether it's deliverance from their enemies or deliverance from their own sins, the solution is the same. It's to wait, to hope and to trust in the Lord. And they weren't just called to hope in the Lord, but they were called to sing about it. Throughout the scriptures, we notice the saints wrestling, right? And we have here a song that the saints can sing when they wrestle. And that's what we find here, right? A song of ascent. Whereas pilgrims, we are perpetually wearied by the journey. We're continually weighted down by sin. But in this song, we find a pilgrim's recipe for rest, the commitment for contentment. Again, I'm only going to deal with the first verse. If you want to hear the other Half of it, just invite me back and I'd be happy to. But the, the big idea we're going to consider in this verse, we're going to consider a resolve that must be our resolve if contentment and peace is to be our experience. And that is this, resolve to humble yourself. Resolve to humble yourself. What might God will for you today that you resolve to humble yourself. Saints, the key to contentment is humility. It is not the absence of trials that brings quiet to the souls. It's not the absence of hardship that brings calm to our spirits. No, the biggest hindrance to our experience of God's peace is our own lack of humility. 
As Peter writes, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that at the proper time he might exalt you. Humility, dear ones, is a prerequisite to us experiencing the blessed peace of God. And this is why the psalmist begins here, interestingly, by humbling himself. I mean, look at verse 1. Oh, Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. I wonder if even hearing it out loud, you notice how strange it is to hear it from another saint. Oh, dear saint, much in your life is above your pay grade. Matter of fact, most of your life is above your pay grade. The question for us is, do we know that? Do we say that? King David, this is King David, not only knows that and says that, but he's singing that. The saints were singing this. This is all above our pay grade. This is all, this is all, this is all, this is all, this is all above our pay grade. We don't know what we're talking about. (laughs) Jonathan, you touch that song and send it to me when it's ready. (laughs) This one gets us in trouble. We get frustrated with God. Why? When we act like we know what he's doing. We start making recommendations and revisions, and we get upset when he doesn't accept them. And we forget, this is all above our pay grade. His dominion is far above us. This is when Isaiah says, the Lord told them, my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways. But he's like, I'm on a higher level. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. Remember who's writing this is King David, ruler of a powerful nation, owner of all kinds of wealth. And yet he begins by honestly professing how little he knows and how little he controls. Oh, saints, we'd be helped if we regularly rehearsed how little we know and how little we control. It's interesting that here, as David depicts humility, he does so in contrast to expressions of pride. And and pride is described here as a preoccupation with desiring great things, having great aims, exercising ourselves to great ends, or claiming to have great understanding because the humble perspective is concerned with great obedience. I like how one commentator put it, uh, the proud person looks compares, competes, but is never content. The proud person focuses on things too great and too marvelous for them. Make no mistake, they're not too great and too marvelous for God, but they're too great and too marvelous for us. But the proud person insists on understanding and knowing those kinds of things. They feel entitled to those God things. Now, many people reject the Lord precisely because they don't understand his ways and his thoughts, and they assume they should be able to, that God is somehow 
unanswerable to us. But beloved, faith is not contingent on us figuring everything out. Faith is us relying on the fact that the Lord already has. We see the psalmist, King David, doing something very different than the proud here. He humbles himself. Indeed, that is the only way to do what another commentator said was the whole point of this text, which is learning to live with unanswerable questions. Friends, that's the Christian life, isn't it? Learning to live in joy and peace with a growing list of unanswerable questions. Life is filled with unanswerable questions. We could ask why an unlimited amount of times about any number of circumstances we find ourselves in or find ourselves heading to. We can ask why about the sorrows we endure, the sicknesses that we experience. We can ask why about sudden and painful losses that we suffer. We ask why about the hindrances and the hardships that are ours, the perplexing providences that the Lord's assigned to us. Uh, Beloved, life is filled with these kinds of questions. And the proud demand answers. They demand answers that they themselves approve of, and in doing so, they presume upon their ability to fathom and understand the mind of God. But faith and humility rest and rejoice in everything residing in God's hands, right? Humility sounds like, oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments? How inscrutable are his paths? And who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. I ripped the page of my Bible, but not the content. Amen. Amen. Right, the proud exalt themselves to being like God in their comprehension, in their hearts, in what they can see and what they can discern. They're, they lift themselves up in pride and in raising themselves above their own position. They occupy themselves with things far beyond their finite comprehension, and all that brings to the soul is unrest, frustration. Anger, discouragement, hardness of heart, hostility towards God. The psalmist here takes a different posture. The posture not of pride but of humility. He shows a different resolve. Back in the day, that song, I don't know what you come to do. I come to clap my hands, my hands. Well, the psalmist is saying, I don't know what you come to do, but I came to humble myself. Listen to this definition of humility, having or showing a modest or low estimate of one's own importance. It's to abase or to make oneself low. And the distinctly Christian application of this is that we're to do this in contrast to God. We humble ourselves before him. And in doing so, what we find is that we are of very little significance and we are of very low estimate. David understood this. Not only does he do this here, he did this other places. Remember what he wrote in Psalm 8. When I look at the heavens, 
the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place. What is man that you are mindful of him? Or the son of man that you care for him? When I think about you, oh Lord, who am I? The heart that says, you, oh Lord, are great. And with that says, and we are not. That says, you, oh Lord, are wise. And with that says, and we are not. You, oh Lord, are perfect. We are not. You, oh Lord, are mighty. We are not. You, oh Lord, are good and always good and forever good and we are not. You, oh Lord, are God and we are not. In reflecting on what God has done, it stirred David to such humbling thoughts. And if that's so for him, it should have the same effect on us. But beloved, consider that we have more than David to look at. We get to look beyond general creation to the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. For nowhere is this more profound truth, more complexingly demonstrated as it is there. More humbling than thinking on God's glory expressed through the galaxy is considering God's glory revealed at Golgotha. There where God showed his love for sinners, and sending his son to suffer for our sins, to taste the bitter and gruesome death on our behalf. There where God offers sinners full and free pardon, full reception into his kingdom on the merit and glory of another, the Lord Jesus, right? It's, it's there where that invitation to be saved extends to all. It does so even today. Oh, if there's any here and you came in here thinking why would God think much of me or thinking way too highly of yourself? You look at the cross and you get a firm answer to both. Oh, the cross says you're not as dope as you think you are. You're a sinner deserving of death, and yet God loves you still. And if you come in more postured like David, I, I can't believe he would care for me. The Lord amazes you with his concern for you and says, well, you are not that valuable in and of yourself, and yet I've put my love on you because I'm loving and he says, and come and get it. When we consider what the cross is and who was on the cross and what happened at the transaction, when we consider the empty tomb and the resurrection, we consider the salvation and eternal life that's provided to little old sinful raggedy us. How do we not be humbled in response? How is it, Lord? that you're mindful of me? How is it, Lord, that you care for me? I mean, how humbling is it to consider the forever forgiveness, the eternal evaporation of debt due to the fact that it's been fully and completely paid, the fact that poor sinners who are wretched and pitiable are made heirs in the kingdom of God and children of the Lord himself. Now, who are we that the Lord would show such tremendous care for us? When you start with God, you shrink down to an appropriately small and insignificant size. And this is what the psalmist does. Notice the very first phrase of the psalm. Oh, Lord. 
And you notice that that Lord is written in all capitals, which lets us know it's actually the name of God, right? Yahweh. It's a weighted title. A reference to the God who has chosen his people, has demonstrated he loves his people and that he keeps his people. He, he looks to the Lord who has been their dwelling place in all generations. The, before the mountains were ever brought forth or ever he had formed the earth and the world, the one who from everlasting to everlasting is God. David's talking to the mighty one, God the Lord, who speaks and summons the earth from the rising of the sun to its setting, who from the very perfection of beauty shines forth, right? He is the Lord who is gracious and merciful, who is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He is the Lord who is good to all and whose mercy is over all that he has made. He is the Lord whose kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, whose dominion endures throughout all generations. Oh my, we join David in having high view of the Lord. And when we consider who he is, when we remember who he is, it's, it's humbling to us. God, the Lord, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He's the God who watches over all the affairs of men without sleeping or slumbering. He is the God who governs the direction of history, the trajectory of every nation. He sits in the heavens, confounds all his enemies, and cares for all his people. He controls all the elements. He upholds the entire universe by the words of his power. He is intricately involved in overseeing all the minute details in each of our lives. He commands his entire army of angels. He sustains each of his saints. He listens to each of our prayers. He answers us all when we call. He carries all our burdens, strengthens our hearts in Christ, raises his people from the grave of their sin, works salvation for a countless many, calls men and women to judgment through death, guards all his people by his own power through their faith, sustains our faith to never fail, disciplines all his children in love, provides for every one of our needs, according to his riches and glory, receives the saints who have died the sleep of death and to be with them where he is as they await the resurrection of their body. And he does this all, all without ever leaving or forsaking a single sheep. He's the Lord. That's what he does. He runs stuff. And he runs it well. And the saints are the only people on the planet who know so. And you can find them in any circumstance saying so by faith. Whether it's prosperity he gives them, they say we trust him. Or whether it's cancer he gives them, they say we trust him. How could you? Mm -mm -mm. My eyes are not raised too high. I can't believe he would do that. Mm -mm -mm -mm. I don't occupy myself with things too great and too wonderful for me. I mean, I don't know. My God would never. Mm -mm -mm. My heart is not lifted up. The Lord is good. 
He's been good to me. Of course, there's things we won't understand and things far too beyond our comprehension. That's what it means to be creations, to be beings that were made. Of course, he doesn't owe us a single explanation for anything he's ever done and is still completely, totally, and always worthy of trusting fully. When we think of the manifold and incalculable works of the Lord, it should have a humbling effect on us to remember who it is we're talking to. To consider how he's demonstrated what he's like. Without a high and exalted view of God, we will have an overly exalted view of ourself. And this is where the psalmist starts. This is where contentment grows in posturing ourselves in humility. Oh, Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. Another commentator has it that the great and wonderful things here meant are God's secret purposes and sovereign means for their accomplishment in which man is not called to cooperate, but to acquiesce. The many things that God does that are beyond our comprehension are not communicated to us so that we might argue with God about it, but that in faith we might accept it all without protest. That's what faith does. It rests in the word of God. That's one of the purposes of the word of God, to let you know who he is, what he's doing, so that through the encouragement of the scriptures and enduring and believing it, we get hope. So so in short, the, the profound and mysterious working of the will of God are not expected to be fully understood, and yet they are expected to be fully accepted and trusted in. I mean, this is what got Job and his friends in trouble. This is what they refused to do. They assumed they could understand the perplexing providence of God. And by not humbling themselves, they only added to their sorrow. They spent 29 chapters pontificating about matters far above their pay grade. If Job would have been more humble, if Job's friends would have been more humble, those 29 chapters of vanity and fallen conjecture could have been replaced by these three short verses. Job could have been mad short. In response to Job's great trials, Job's friends show up and they begin to occupy themselves with things too great and too marvelous for them. And in doing so, they sin. And and we know this to be the case because Job and all his friends, except Elihu, get rebuked. The Lord uses as an opportunity to humble them. And Elihu's comments are not answers to their questions. He just is saying, you remember he's the Lord? He's the Lord. God gives Job no answers. He just reminds him who he is. And Job is eventually humbled. And do you know what he says at the end of the book? He says, Job answers the Lord and said, I've been tripping. I have uttered what I did not understand. He said things too wonderful for me. 
which I did not know. Oh, if only Job and Eliphaz and Bildad and Zophar reflected on the sentiments of the psalm. If only somebody stopped the combo and said, listen, I don't know it all. You don't know it all. Let's trust the one who does. Let's hope in the Lord together. Listen, dear saint, there is a lot we don't know. There's a lot we won't know, but there's nothing our God doesn't. Just consider how much we would all be helped to daily remember, to regularly sing how much we don't know and can't control. Failing to do this will empty you of peace. Failing to do this got... You know, Job and his friends in trouble, it gets the disciples in trouble, it gets us all into trouble. And praise the Lord, we have a better man to look to than Job. We have someone better to learn from than Job. We have the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the most righteous man who ever lived, ever. And he most lived this contentment in the Lord perfectly. No one ever humbled himself more or more fully and more completely trusted his father's will than the eternal son of God, the Lord Jesus. It was his boast to completely rely on his father. Of his trust, we know it was his glory to to trust every word his father said, to speak only what his father told him. Even the day of his return, he happy and contentedly rested in its concealment. We see the Lord Jesus trust his father so much that he would obey and he would obey all the time. We're told he obeyed even to the point of death, even the death of the cross. We see him obey and trust his father in the garden. Do you know what's happening in the garden? We say, his soul was in agony. He says, Lord, take this cup from me. Yet, nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. You know what he's doing? He's calming and quieting his soul like a weaned child with its mother. Hoping in the Lord. Hebrews 2 says of the son, I will sing your praise in the midst of the congregation. I will put my trust in him. That was Jesus' whole life walking among the gathering group of the people of God and displaying the praise of God and trust in God. And we know how it ends. Jesus was not disappointed in trusting the Lord. He was not put to shame for humbling himself. No, we see Jesus humbled himself under God's mighty hand, and he was exalted at the proper time. He was raised from the dead victoriously. He was glorified bodily, and though he was numbered with the transgressors in death, he was vindicated by his resurrection. He was given a name that's above every name, and he is now seated at the right hand of the majesty on high. Oh, sing it with David and see it in Jesus. The humble thing to do is always to trust the Lord. Always it's to hope in God. There is no non-humble way to not trust him. Hope all those negatives in that sentence worked out right. That's the, that's the song is let's trust him, let's hope in him. And we have need to sing this song a lot. So if we're told what the proud do with their heart and with their eyes and with their mind, what are the humble to do with it? 
Where then, if, 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 if not to look above themselves or to think too much of themselves, what do we do with our heart and our mind and our eyes? And the answer is, you set them on Jesus. That's the thread through the book of Hebrews. Set it all on Jesus. Raise them eyes on Jesus, looking to Jesus. Lift that heart to Jesus. Set that mind on Jesus. And you know what happens when you do that? It says the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your heart and mind in Christ Jesus. Paul wrote to the Philippians, listen, you can do all things through Jesus who gives you strength. Strength to do what? What's the context of the passage? Contentment. Paul's like, I know how to struggle. I know how to succeed. I know how to suffer. I know how to be comforted. I do it all in Jesus. I do it all with my my mind and my eyes and my heart fixed on Jesus. And that's what we're to do. This song makes the saints look to Jesus. Just as they were going to Zion, David served as their service leader. We can sing the song more fully looking to Christ, who is our service leader to the new Jerusalem. And may the Lord's doing be marvelous in our eyes. May we find great rest knowing that the scepter of providence never departs from his loving hands. And all hymns that really get the people going now are ones who reflect this truth. Look around your church when it is well is saying. Why? Why? We were designed to profess that hope in him. I'll leave you with the words to a hymn I love, my God, my Father, blissful name. It says, whatever thy will ordain, so give me strength to bear. And let me know my Father reigns and trust his tender care. Thy ways are little known to my weak and erring sight. Oh, help me in my soul to own that all thy ways are right. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, help us to not raise our eyes too high. To not lift up our our mind. Help us not occupy ourselves with things too great and too wonderful. Help us to not try to function outside our pay grade. Help us to not be confused about our station. But help us to happily stay yoked up to Christ. To enjoy the rest he gives for the soul. To trust what you're doing in our life. Whether it's the sting of suffering or the pleasantness of plush pastures. Help us to remember you have not spared your son, but you have given him up for us all. And therefore, we know you will with him graciously give us all things. Be glorified in us as we are resolved to hope in you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Consider giving to Southeastern Seminary online or visiting us for a preview day. For information on how to give or sign up for a preview day, 
visit scbts.edu.